This podcast is presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, which is undergoing an extensive renovation to create more exhibition galleries, community and event space, a cafe, and more. See all the changes coming at virginiahistory.org. Welcome to episode two of season five of the How We Got Here podcast. I'm your host, Rachel DePampa. From a civil rights legend to a trip to the moon and a voyage overseas. I've been waiting to tell you about this episode for months now. We've got a really good guest we've never had on the podcast before, too. If you want to follow our journey as we go week to week, please give our Instagram page a follow. That's How We Got Here RVA. We are turning back the clock on the week of July 12th through the 18th. Excuse me, ma'am. You need to move right now. Imagine being told you had to get out of your bus seat because of the color of your skin, because it wasn't white. You weren't good enough to sit up front I know your mind instantly goes to Rosa Parks. But we're going down the road that led to Rosa. Irene Morgan refused to give up her bus seat in Virginia 11 years before Parks in Alabama. Irene Morgan became a a civil rights hero, although sort of unwittingly so. She didn't really intend to become the plaintiff in a landmark Supreme Court case. You've heard that voice many times on past seasons of How We Got Here. That's one of our favorite guests to have back, Dr. Karen Sherry with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. And Karen's helping us tell a remarkable story that happened on July 16, 1944. 27-year-old Irene Morgan was jailed for refusing to give up her bus seat in Middlesex County, Virginia. Irene Morgan was living in Baltimore at the time. She'd just gone to Gloucester County, Virginia to visit her mother after suffering a miscarriage. She had two other children. She was taking the kids to go stay with their grandma while she recovered from her miscarriage. Perhaps part of her inspiration for refusing to give up her bus seat, maybe she was feeling unwell, maybe she needed that seat for health reasons. On July 16, 1944, a mentally and physically exhausted Irene was headed home to Baltimore. She was a working mom and had to get back to her job with an aircraft manufacturer. She was on the production line for the B-26 Marauder, a twin-engine bomber. She had boarded a Greyhound bus, and as the bus traveled northward to Baltimore, it would stop and pick up additional passengers. 
And according to Virginia state law, buses were legally mandated to segregate passengers. I like to point this out for context. This was 76 years ago. There are people alive today who remember a world where humans were legally separated because of skin color. Most bus companies and other train companies and transportation companies, they would give the driver discretion to ask black passengers to give up seats for white passengers to move into the back of the bus. By these laws and practices, the white passengers sat up front, black passengers sat in the back. Racial segregation was ubiquitous throughout the South. Particularly in the South, where it was not only common practice, for the races to be separated in restaurants and movie theaters and shops on buses. But it was also the law in the wake of a notorious Supreme Court decision, widely considered one of the worst Supreme Court decisions ever, Plessy v. Ferguson of 1896. That Supreme Court case said it was constitutional, it was legal to have separate but equal facilities for the races. And in the wake of that ruling, Virginia and many other states passed laws requiring racial segregation. On this hot July day in 1944, Morgan boarded that Greyhound bus and sat down next to another African-American woman who was carrying an infant. There were no designated black or white seats, but a black person could not sit next to or across from a white person. When a white couple boarded the bus at that stop in Middlesex County, the bus driver ordered Morgan and her seatmate to move. The woman with the baby immediately retreated to the back of the bus. Irene Morgan refused. The bus driver decided to call for the enforcement of Virginia's laws. The driver stopped the bus in the town of Saluda, where they were met by a sheriff and his deputies. The deputies boarded the bus. They first gave Irene Morgan a citation. She, she ripped that up, threw that away, and they later tried to physically apprehend her to, to take her off the bus, and, and she resisted arrest. Later in life, Irene would describe this incident in great detail. Karen is quoting here. She said, I didn't do anything wrong. I'd paid for my seat. I was sitting where I was supposed to. The sheriff's deputy grabbed me. That's when I kicked him in a very bad place. She kicked him in the groin. He hobbled off and another one came on. He was trying to put his hands on me to get me off the bus. I was going to bite him, but he was dirty, so I clawed him instead. I ripped his shirt. We were both pulling at each other. 
He said he'd use his nightstick, and I said, we'll whip each other. So <laughs> that gives you a sense of how resistant she was to give up her bus seat. A knockdown, drag out fight to keep her seat. Feisty Irene was eventually arrested and jailed. Her mother paid her, her bail. She was charged on two counts for resisting arrest and also for violating Virginia's 1930 law requiring racial segregation in transportation. She pled guilty to resisting arrest and paid the fine for that, but she refused to plead guilty to violating segregation. And she said, quote, there was no court in the land which would make me believe I was inferior to anyone. That is the best quote you will hear all day, guaranteed. Doesn't it just shine a light on her fundamental sense of equality? and her refusal to comply with the dehumanizing and oppressive statutes of Jim Crow. After she was convicted, Irene Morgan decided to appeal. And she got help from the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which was beginning in the 1930s and really ramping up in the 1940s and beyond trying to dismantle Jim Crow segregation through the courts. So they were actively looking for cases with which to challenge the segregation statutes and other laws allowing for racial segregation and racial discrimination. You can see why Irene's case was so appealing to the NAACP. Her NAACP lawyer in Virginia was Spotswood Robinson III, who, along with Oliver Hill Sr., was one of the leading civil rights lawyers in Virginia and very involved in Virginia's fight to desegregate schools in, in the 1950s. They appealed her case to the Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals, which upheld her conviction. So they appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Enter Thurgood Marshall. He was the lead counsel for the NAACP. History will later know him as the Supreme Court's first African-American justice. Marshall won the case. Justices ruled six to one in 1946 that Virginia's state law enforcing segregation on interstate buses was unconstitutional. Dr. Karen Sherry says, the victory led to a famous quote from Marshall. He called the decision, which handed Irene Morgan that victory, he called it a decisive blow to the evil of segregation and all that it stood for. It was a landmark case. It did take a while to be fully enforced and to be put into practice, but nevertheless, it was a, a landmark starting point for dismantling segregation. Marshall and several other attorneys used an innovative strategy to brief and argue the case. They overturned her conviction on the basis that segregated seating was unconstitutional because it interfered with interstate commerce. 
Now that might sound a little odd, but it was actually part of the NAACP's very deliberate legal strategy. Instead of arguing against the legality of segregation by using, for example, the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection under the law, they decided instead to argue her case based on the U.S. Constitution's protections for interstate commerce, because there were more precedents for courts protecting transportation companies' freedoms around interstate travel. And so the NAACP, I think, was very savvy in taking that legal strategy, and it, and it was successful in, in Irene Morgan's case. It was successful legally, but in practice, most Southern states and most transportation companies didn't enforce the unconstitutionality of segregation that Irene Morgan's case had determined. So bus segregation continued for a couple of decades, and that's why 11 years after Irene Morgan, civil rights activists like Rosa Parks were still staging protests in Rosa Parks' case in the form of refusing to give up her seat. We also see this in the fight to desegregate schools in Virginia. The Supreme Court declares segregation unconstitutional, but the law continues to be broken. The court can't police enforcement. It really wasn't until the landmark legislation of the 1960s that came about as a result of the really concerted civil rights efforts of the 1950s and 60s. So the um, Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Fair Housing Act of 1968. That was when many of these discriminatory practices were not only declared unconstitutional, but the federal government was also given the authority to enforce those laws. Irene's case actually inspired the first Freedom Rides, the 1947 journey of reconciliation, where 16 activists from the Chicago-based Congress of Racial Equality rode on interstate buses through the Upper South to test the enforcement of the Supreme Court's ruling. Very, very slowly, both through law, through acts of resistance, through legal challenges, racial segregation was dismantled across the South. And Irene Morgan was a very important step in that process. Why do you think she's not as well known as Rosa Parks? Rosa Parks was a, a very active figure and a leader within the Montgomery Black community. She was very prominent and active civil rights activist. She'd been working for civil rights for several years and continued to do so. So I think for those efforts, Rosa Parks is, is better known. As for Irene, she led a fairly quiet life after the victory. You know, going into that day when she boarded the bus on July 16th, 1944, I don't think she was intending to become a civil rights hero. Her first husband died, so she remarried and became Irene Kirkaldi and lived in New York City for the rest of her long life. In 2001, then-President Bill Clinton awarded her the Presidential Citizens Medal for her efforts. 
Irene died after making one final trip to Gloucester, Virginia. On August 10, 2007, at her daughter's home, Irene passed from complications of Alzheimer's disease. She was 90 years old. July 16, 1944, a black woman decides, in the moment, she's not budging from her bus seat. Her case leads to a landmark decision from the U.S. Supreme Court. Her journey became the subject of a civil rights rallying song titled, You Don't Have to Ride Jim Crow. One of the lines civil rights activists would chant, get on the bus, sit any place, because Irene Morgan won her case. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. 30 seconds and counting. Three men strapped in tight. Astronauts report it feels good. T minus 25 seconds. More than 350 feet in the air. 20 seconds and counting. 7.5 million pounds of thrust. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. Ready to launch them into history. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. July 16th, 1969. Clear. We got a roll program. The culmination of nearly a decade of innovation following a goal set eight years earlier by then-President John F. Kennedy. The next step in the space race with the Soviets. Space is open to us now and our eagerness to share its meaning is not governed by the efforts of others. We go into space because whatever mankind must undertake, free men must fully share. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. And none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. But in a very real sense, it will not be one man going to the moon. If we make this judgment affirmatively, it will be an entire nation. The entire nation's Hopes and dreams of space exploration were along for the ride that July day with Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. Houston, Apollo 11 entered and gave us a magnificent ride. All right, Roger, 11, we'll pass that on, and it certainly looks like you're well on your way now. That was Neil Armstrong praising the launch vehicle. Uh, we have no complaints with any of the three stages uh, on that, that ride. It was uh, beautiful. 
The nerve-wracking white knuckle launch was complete, but this mission was just getting started. Apollo 11, this is Houston. You are confirmed to go for orbit. After one and a half orbits of Earth, Apollo then got confirmation for what Mission Control called translunar injection. To put it simply, they were heading to the moon. For three days, those three men lived like no human had before. Adrenaline pumping, fighting back anxiety over the fact that one wrong move, one faulty piece of equipment, would spell certain death inside the command module called Columbia. Each new step, a major milestone, and the next on the list, lunar orbit. After that was achieved, a day passed, and Aldrin and Armstrong climbed into the lunar module known as Eagle to prepare for descent onto the moon. If the astronauts were nervous about the Columbia keeping them alive, the Eagle was a whole new ballgame. Walls as thin as just a few sheets of printer paper, the floor that the two men shared was 36 inches by 55 inches. That's three feet by just under five feet. And chairs weren't installed because of weight issues. Aldrin and Armstrong had to stand while they hurtled towards the moon's surface using harnesses, handholds, and Velcro on their shoes to keep them as still as possible. Control, go. Talcom, go. GNC, go. Econ, go. Surgeon, go. Capcom, or go for landing. But on their way down, an unexpected alarm interrupted an incredibly tense atmosphere of both Mission Control and the Eagle. 1201. 1201. Roger, 1201 alarm. 1201 alarm. Radar tracking problems and computer overload were to blame, but flight controllers were confident in their calculations. Right, we're go, flight. Okay, we're go. We're go. Armstrong noticed the automatic landing system was taking them to a dangerously rocky region. So he overrode the computer and took manual control. The closer they got to the surface, the more dust was shot into the air from the rocket engine, making it hard to see. Fuel for the descent was dangerously low. This was the final phase of the landing, and NASA says Armstrong's heart was understandably racing at 150 beats per minute instead of his usual 60. During the final seconds of descent, more alarms due to computer overload until finally. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. The first words spoken from the surface of another world. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Only 30 seconds of fuel remained when they finally touched down. Armstrong would later confirm that landing was his biggest concern. Quote, there were just a thousand things to worry about. The unknowns were rampant. They landed in an area known as the Sea of Tranquility. Because Armstrong took control of Eagle during that descent, 
They were about four miles away from the predicted touchdown point, landing nearly 90 seconds ahead of schedule. While Mission Control celebrated the feat, Armstrong and Aldrin took a breath and quickly moved to the next task, preparing Eagle to lift off and return to orbit quickly in case one of the lunar module's foot pads began sinking into the dust or if another unforeseen emergency arose. Thankfully, none did. Six and a half hours after landing on the lunar surface, Armstrong prepares for the moment that will immortalize him in human history. An estimated 650 million people on Earth watched as he became the first person to step foot on the moon. I'm gonna step off the limb now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The surface appears to be uh, very, very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. Shortly afterwards, Buzz Aldrin joined Armstrong on the lunar surface, offering a two-word description. Magnificent desolation. The first ever moonwalk lasted about two and a half hours as the pair of space explorers took photos and collected samples. A flight controller in mission control during this historic moment named Bill Wepner, reflecting on that day 50 years later. So on the one hand, we were thrilled that that part of the mission was successful. On the other hand, we had to be prepared for some eventualities that fortunately didn't occur. And we had something special going that we were doing that very few other people had the privilege of doing. We were not only a team, we were a fraternity. Time for a quick How We Got Here rabbit hole. What Armstrong and Aldrin didn't have time to worry about was the drama brewing in the skies above them. The Soviet Union had launched an unmanned robotic spacecraft called Luna 15 three days before Apollo 11's launch. Luna 15 was the Soviets' second attempt to bring samples from the moon back to Earth. Two days before Columbia arrived in lunar orbit, Luna 15 was there the Soviets poised to be the first to bring samples back home. But instead of making its descent ahead of Apollo to retrieve those samples, the Soviets had to perform two maneuvers and check systems on the spacecraft over the span of four days. It finally began its descent to the surface on July 21st about two hours before the Americans would begin their perilous journey home. But after just four minutes, and about two miles above the moon's surface, transmissions from Luna 15 abruptly stopped. Its most likely fate, the side of a moon mountain. Its mission, a failure. All in all, 
Armstrong and Aldrin spent 21 hours and 36 minutes on the moon's surface. That included a rest period for seven hours of sleep. They slept on the moon. My mind is blown here. How do you sleep on the moon? I did not know that fact until we did this story. Okay, back to our journey. Before beginning the ascent back to rejoin Michael Collins on the Columbia, they left a few things behind. That's great. Is the lighting halfway decent? Yes, indeed. They've got the flag up now, and you can see the stars and stripes on the lunar surface. Beautiful. Just beautiful. Along with the American flag is a patch honoring the fallen Apollo 1 crew, a one-and-a-half-inch silicon disc containing micro-miniaturized goodwill messages from 73 countries, and the names of congressional and NASA leaders, and of course, a plaque that reads, Here men from the planet Earth first set foot on the moon, July 1969 A.D. We came in peace for all mankind. Then, it was time to come home. The pair blasted off from the moon and docked with the Columbia and a lonely Michael Collins. Collins would later say that after they rejoined him, he, quote, really felt that we were going to carry this thing off. On July 24th, after a total flight time of 195 hours, 18 minutes, and 35 seconds, 36 minutes longer than NASA planned, by the way, Apollo 11 splashed down in the Pacific Ocean. Their mission accomplished. July 16, 1969, Americans began a quest given to them by a president no longer alive to see it through. Instead of looking up at the moon and stars, we could go there ourselves staring down the unknown to accomplish something unimaginable. I have not yet begun to fight. I bet you've heard those words before. It's the immortal retort of Captain John Paul Jones to a request to surrender in the midst of one of the most desperate battles in American military history. It's the quote that's used as the story of who we are as American people. Okay, mic drop. You can't top this opening act, folks. Trust me. This is one of the most powerful ways to start a joyride of an adventure across the seas. July 18, 1792, naval hero of the American Revolution, John Paul Jones, dies alone in Paris. But we're going to start this segment with the winding tale of the fast-paced and short life of a Scott-turned-American icon who gave birth to the U.S. Navy. 
He is arrogant, egotistical, self-righteous, but a brilliant man also who was years ahead of his time. Ed Moore specializes in naval warfare. He works with the Mariner's Museum in Newport News. Are you a Virginian? I am not. I'm a Floridian by birth, but I have been here for 32 years now, so. And he paid in-state tuition to attend Virginia Wesleyan and ODU, so for all intents and purposes, he's a Virginian. He's also a retired sports editor and columnist. There was a prominent photo of legend Hank Aaron hanging on the wall behind his head during our entire Zoom interview. Also, he was seated in an old creaky chair, so you might hear that sound a little during our story. Personally, I kind of like it. It's like a creaky wooden ship on the water, appropriate for this indelible tale. Now we have to address this. The first thing that often comes to mind in Virginia when you hear the name John Paul Jones, an arena in Charlottesville. Do you get that a lot? Yes. Yes, I do. I get it during the question and answer session. I almost always get asked that. One of the things that uh, I do for the Mariners Museum is I speak to the Navy and the Air Force and the Army fairly regularly. And I've been a regular guest for the Navy's annual birthday in October. I've made a speech about Jones to about 600 members of the Navy uh, recently. And not one of them asked me that question during the Q&A because they know there's no relation. But most Virginians think that that arena is indeed named after him. It's not. The arena is named for 1948 UVA Law School grad, John Paul Jones. His family paid $35 million for the naming rights to the arena. Our John Paul Jones we speak of today was born in Scotland on July 6, 1747. He was born in Scotland in a town called Gerbuttrate. His father was a landscaper for a nobleman, and he actually grew up on this nobleman's estate. On the Scottish coast, Firth of Solway, England, and the port of Whitehaven is only about 20 miles across the Firth. On a clear day, he could see England. His actual real name is John Paul Jr. We'll get to how he added the Jones and drops the Jr. later has a brother and two sisters. Uh, He was educated in mathematics, and he wanted to see the world and become a self-made man, and he thought the best way to do that was to join the Merchant Marine. So he actually became a sailor at the age of 13. Which was normal back then. They even had officers at that age in the British Navy. But he starts out in the Merchant Fleet. As a 13-year-old, in his first trip out of Scotland was to Fredericksburg, where his brother lived. His brother was a landowner and gentleman farmer. Fredericksburg, Virginia had about 3,000 people living in it at the time, in 1761. Hung up with his brother for a while, continued the cruise down into the Caribbean and back, and he was sailing regularly with merchant ships, and then he got his big break. The captain of the ship recognized his intelligence and taught him how to sail and how to determine latitude and longitude. Normally that was never done because you didn't want to have a mutiny on your ship. So you wanted a situation where nobody knew how to sail other than the captain and the first mate. Makes sense. Who wants a mutiny? 
Well, it does make for really good storytelling, as you'll soon find out. Besides, it's a good thing he learned to sail. Jones is taught his captain and his first mate die from fever on the cruise. Because he knew navigation, he safely brought the ship back to Whitehaven Port in England and was rewarded by the owners of the ship with his own ship. So he becomes the actual captain of a ship at the age of 21, and then he, he's on a regular route back and forth between England and the Caribbean. Of course, Caribbean had lots of uh, European holdings back then, still do actually. The Caribbean was also where the slave trade was happening. Slave merchants delivered more than 4 million Africans to the Caribbean. Humans shipped like cargo and sold. At one point, John Paul Jr. was assigned to a slave ship. So I asked Ed Moore if we know from Jones's journals what Jones thought about his experience. Thought it horrid and detestable. And as soon as he got to the Caribbean, got off it, just walked away and said, I want nothing to do with this. Nothing. And believed it to be just horrid. And, and the thing that bothered him the most during that time period, when the slaves would die during the Middle Passage, they would just throw them overboard. And he thought that was just the most horrific thing he'd ever seen because he felt like anybody who was on a ship, regardless of why they were on the ship, deserved the dignity of that every sailor should receive. He very much believed in sailors' rights, and, and he believed that, that um, a sailing ship should operate as a community, and he felt like the slaves should be included in that. For Jones, the water was everything. He once said, I wish to have no connection with any ship that does not sail fast, for I intend to go in harm's way. And he was no stranger to drama on the decks. Remember the threat of mutiny, a revolt against a ship's captain? Well, it happened a lot on those rough waters, twice in fact, to Captain John Paul Jr. On one of the trips, he had a mutinous sailor who he gave the lash to. Meaning he whipped him with a rope. What the lash was is you had a rope and the rope had knots tied into it. And then the rope was then attached by nails to a board, sort of like a giant paddle. You would give the lash to their back. And the normal procedure was 12 lashes, which was enough to turn the back into pulp, but not enough to kill a man. Whew. Not getting that image out of my head for days. After he gave the lash to the mutinous sailor, the trip continued, and that sailor boarded a different ship and eventually died of a fever. When John Paul Jr. returned to Scotland, he was arrested. Because the sailor that he lashed was upper class in Scotland, that's why he was arrested, because the man's father convinced the sheriff to arrest Jones. It was fairly common back in those days for wealthy people to actually go to sea to learn about the world. Jones's misfortune was that he gave the lash to a, to a wealthy nobleman's son, not a common sailor, not a common illiterate sailor. There was an inquest and John Paul Jr. was found innocent. So, he resumed his career. 
During that resumption of his career while in the Caribbean, he had another mutinous sailor. This time he killed him with a sword. There was another inquest, this one in Tobago in the Caribbean. The Admiralty Board, which had done the first inquest and which had exonerated him, the Admiralty Board was not in session. So he was going to have to go before regular court. Now at that time, Tobago only had about 300 British white residents. Everybody else was a slave. He figured he had no chance whatsoever to actually win that case before a jury of Tobagan peers. His greatest fear was they didn't know anything about sailing or anything about command of a ship. So he fled. He rode a horse to the other side of Tobago from the port. And by cover of night, the 26-year-old got on a merchant ship and returned to Fredericksburg, Virginia in January of 1774. When he arrives in Fredericksburg, he discovers his brother has died. He doesn't have his brother to take care of him anymore, but he had one large advantage. While in Scotland, he had joined the International Order of Masons. And in the Masonic Lodges, once you are a Mason, you are a Mason internationally and worldwide. So the Masons in Fredericksburg took care of him and became his benefactors, provided him with money, place to live, with some prestige, and he enjoyed the life of being a gentleman in Fredericksburg. Believe it or not, he wanted to settle down and become a farmer. He even tried to buy some land on the Mattapanai River, a place called Fox Landing. But the deal fell through when the owner decided not to sell. He then courted a woman named Dorothy Spotswood Dandridge, who was the granddaughter of Governor Alexander Spotswood, who was a Virginia governor who had Blackbeard killed. And of course, Spotsylvania County is named after him. The granddaughter, Dorothy, was considered by her peers to be way too important and way too influential for the likes of John Paul. She's nearly American royalty, the first cousin to Martha Washington. John Paul Jones is considered good-looking, about five foot six. A little bit short, very, very stocky, very muscular, a handsome man. Everyone thought that he looked like a warrior with a thick Scottish accent, and I am going to spare you my attempt at that. Trust me, I'm sparing you. Remember, he's fled a murder charge from a mutiny where he killed a man with his sword. So he's technically a fugitive. By the time he meets Dorothy, he's changed his name to John Paul Jones, dropping the junior altogether. So he's courting Dorothy. Dorothy's family decides he's not good enough, so instead she marries Patrick Henry. Any longtime fan of this podcast knows this is my chance. Every season always comes back to Virginian Patrick Henry. He's like the Kevin Bacon of the How We Got Here podcast. This is my moment to play my perfection of a Patrick Henry remix from his famous speech, a reenactment at St. John's Church. I try to get it into every season, much to the chagrin of executive producer Colton Weekly. Let it come! Forbid it, almighty God! Okay, I will spare you that too. Or will I? <laughs> Just wait. Anyway, back to incognito John Paul Jones, almost marrying into eventual American royalty. 
If he had bought the farm, it probably would have been completely lost to history and nobody would even know who he is. Especially if he had not married Dorothy, if he had married a local woman. As a matter of fact, he never did get married. After being spurred by her, he never asked anybody else to marry him. He was uh, a bachelor his entire life. He also never lived with anyone his whole life. He lived alone. He never had a roommate. He was a loner and subject to brooding and depression and, and just always liked going his own way. Remember, it's 1774 and he's in Virginia. By, of course, 1775, the shooting has begun. The American Revolution is underway. So he travels to Philadelphia, meets with the Continental Congress, and offers himself as a naval captain. Tells him, I've never been in the Navy, never, never joined the Royal Navy, merchant marine my whole life, but I know the waters of Europe, I know the waters of the Caribbean, and these are where the battles are going to be fought. Uh, the Congress takes him up on it. The Continental Congress actually formed the Navy in 1775. It was actually the first act of Congress before an army was formed and before the uh, Declaration of Independence, the Continental Navy was created. So the Navy to this day considers themselves the first and foremost military branch of the service. The fledgling Congress gave Jones a merchant ship to be outfitted as a warship. It was named the Ranger. His first mission? raid British shipping routes off the American coast and in the Caribbean. He proves to be very, very adept at it. And one of the reasons he was adept is he had that Scottish accent. He could perfectly mimic a British sailor, a British captain. He would put a British flag on a ship instead of an American flag. He would sail up to the British ship with his British flag, speak in his Scottish brogue, identifying himself as an English captain and as a British ship until they were side by side, and then run up the American flag, open the gun ports, and attack. He called this savage trickery guerrilla warfare. And he thought it was perfectly legitimate to use this deceit and trickery. And it served him well his entire naval career, this ability to mimic an English officer, not only to mimic their accents, but their patterns of speech, the growl that they would speak in, the, the haughtiness. And he would also wear a British uniform as part of that ruse instead of an American uniform. It worked wonders all through his career. All the while, he's still wanted by the British for killing that sailor with the sword. They considered him a pirate. They did not consider him a legitimate American officer. They never did at any time. There was a price on his head. The legal term at that time was a yoke on his head. A yoke on your head means you've already been convicted. You've already been tried. Now they just have to catch you. <laughs> You're already guilty. The idea was to capture him as a pirate. And the policy in that time period in history was you would hang the pirate at, at the entrance to the Thames River in London, and you would leave his body there for three complete tides. And after three complete tides, there wouldn't be much left of the body because of the fish and the birds eating the body. Birds would go for the head first, made for a gruesome spectacle. And so this price on his head by the British government was never taken off. They never at any time in history considered him a legitimate American naval captain. He was just a pirate. His next act, cementing his legacy in British lore. He convinced the American government 
that you're fighting this war all wrong. You don't have a legitimate trained Navy. He asked the government to create the Naval Academy to take the best and the brightest America has to offer, teach them mathematics and physics and philosophy, create a professional naval service, and to build a Navy that could guard the coast and also save the world. But he pointed out in doing this, you have to take the war to the enemy. You can't just guard your coasts. So the Americans decided, okay, go. So Jones takes four American ships and heads to the waters he knows best, the Irish Sea in between England, Ireland, and Scotland. He goes home. He attacks his own ports. He attacks his own estate where he grew up. Sends uh, soldiers in there, and he was planning on kidnapping the Earl. You know, the one he grew up under, that his father had worked for. Fortunately for the Earl, he wasn't there the day Jones arrived. He was in London on business, but his wife was there, and they stole from his wife to prove that he had been there the tea service, the silver plate and the silver tea service, which had just been used to make breakfast and still had the tea leaves in it. Jones' rampage wouldn't stop there. He burned a British uh, ship. He captured a British warship, the Drake, and, and destroyed it. The British captain of the Drake was killed in the battle. He went ashore to burn ships, was successful in burning a couple. He wanted to burn the whole fleet, but uh, the weather stopped him. They considered him a common pirate, especially since he was doing the incognito thing with the false flag and the false uniform and the false identification. He was so taken aback by the reaction to this and so guilty about it that seven years later, he returned the silver service to the Earl with the tea leaves still in it. <laughs> they had never bothered to clean them. The English never forgot. In fact, they raised the price on his head. Anyone could bring him in. The British Navy, a civilian with a pitchfork. Oh, and they tried and failed. Despite the price on his head, twice more during the war, he actually put ashore in England and actually went into London incognito, wearing a civilian's uniform, and went to plays and conducted business and just hung out with people not realizing that he was right there in its midst. Read newspaper stories about himself. Literally went to a play in London. <laughs> incognito, with a price on his head, while the American Revolution was still being fought, as I've said, quite the flair for the dramatic. He ends up in France, hanging out with Benjamin Franklin and John Adams and working for the American government, but the American government didn't have the money to put him into a fleet, so he talked the French into it. Meaning, he went to see the King of France, Louis XVI, and his famed wife, Marie Antoinette. Funny story, Marie Antoinette loved to meet with people who were famous and to hear their stories. And she especially liked meeting with him. Enjoyed his war stories and just his manner of presentation. He was a first-rate storyteller. And he was considered himself a warrior poet. He was prolific writer and poet, letter writer. And the way the system worked back then is the royalty couldn't touch commoners, which even a captain in the Navy is a commoner. So she would sit behind a glass partition while her guests would, would be on the other side of that partition. And John Paul Jones and Marie Antoinette would talk for hours about naval battles with this glass partition in between them. So Louis XVI authorizes John Paul Jones to take over a French ship as captain. 
and they took over the Dukta Duras, which is an old Indiaman. And the Indiaman is the ships that were used to transport the tea back and forth between Asia and Europe. They were called wedding cake ships because they looked like wedding cakes because there were additional decks put on them to carry as much cargo as possible. They were big, ugly, slow ships. In fact, they were as big as anything in the British fleet. The, the Luc de Duras, which at the time was in a port in, in Holland, is purchased by a French businessman. He is authorized as the captain of it by the king himself, outfits it for war, renames it the Bonhomme Richard after Benjamin Franklin. Okay, that just means good man Richard in French. Benjamin Franklin's newspaper in the Americas was the Poor Richard's Almanac, which translated in French as Bonhomme Richard. What Jones didn't know at this time, which nobody knew other than the British, is that Benjamin Franklin's secretary, Edward Bancroft, was a British spy. And everything Jones was plotting and doing, the British knew was happening because Bancroft was telling them on a nightly basis. Franklin never figured out his assistant was a spy and neither did Jones. So the British knew what Jones was up to, but still couldn't stop him at any point during the war. He takes this big, slow ship, which is now a warship, sails all the way around the west coast of Ireland, takes the long route to the north of Scotland, raiding, capturing ships, fighting all along the way, comes back down down the east coast of England and runs into what was known as the Baltic Fleet. The Baltic Fleet was a 44-ship merchant group that would bring all of the shipbuilding materials from Scandinavia to England, so England could build all of these warships. England had the largest fleet in the world, 131 warships, uh, more than 50 of them were called Ship of the Line. Ship of the Line means 50 plus guns. Those are the big giant ships that we know from history. It was called the Wooden Wall protect England from all invaders. So he runs into the Baltic fleet, which is guarded by two English warships, the largest and most important being the Serapis. It's September 23rd, 1777. They approach each other and the wind died down to virtually nothing. It's not like the movies. The Mulhomer Shard with no wind can only make about two knots. You can walk faster than that (laughs) to pick up a cup of coffee. The syrup is going to about four knots. As the sun sets, they engage in this slow motion battle. Where they're both barely moving, but opening full broadsides against each other. They lock into each other, they collide multiple occasions. Jones ties the ships together so they can't break apart, so the Serapis cannot get away from them. With the ships tied together and pushed together, Both of them are firing at each other at will, both with cannons and with snipers. And Jones was the first commander to put Marine snipers up in the sails to take out the gun crews of the enemy. Most captains wouldn't do that because they were afraid of the gunpowder catching the sails on fire, but he would. And so at that shorter range, the cannonballs from the Serapis were literally going through one wall of the Monhomer Shard and coming out the other wall on the other side. This is, for naval battles at the time period, a bloodbath. Even in a horrific naval battle during this time period, you might lose one in ten men. In this egregious engagement, we're talking six or seven times that. 
Both crews just being wiped out. All the cannons being destroyed. Officers being killed by snipers. They're fighting a point-blank range. Tied together, fires going on. And because of all the cannonballs going through it, the Bonhomme Richard is starting to sink. Two of his gun crew officers come up on deck and try to surrender. And when Jones, with the, by this time, is firing, loading and firing a cannon all by himself because the gun crews are dead, he hears his one of his officers calling for quarter, shouts at him angrily, pulls his pistol out and shoots at him to kill him. And it misfires. Then he throws his pistol and knocks the guy out cold. And he falls all the way down from one deck to the other and says, I shall show no quarter. In case you were wondering, calling quarter is surrendering. The captain of the Serapis, Richard Pearson, heard somebody call quarters. So he yells across, did I hear quarters? And that's when Jones said his famous quote, 45 years after the battle, his second in command wrote, that what Jones's response was, do you call quarters? He said, I have not yet begun to fight. What's really interesting is Ed Moore says there are multiple quotes from this moment attributed to John Paul Jones. What Jones put in his official report to the government <laughs> was that his actual response was, I haven't as yet thought of surrendering, but I am determined to make you ask for quarter, which is kind of long-winded in his, in his Scottish bro. What the sailors who were with him heard him say was, I may sink, but I'll be damned if I strike. But it comes down to his history is, I have not yet begun to fight. It's still early in the American Revolution, and we have an American ship built by the French with a crew from everywhere. It's about one-third American, and the rest of them were from India and the Middle East and North Africa and Holland and Spain and Italy and Ireland and Scotland trying to destroy each other point-blank range. That was the first time in American history that happened. We're now four and a half hours into this battle. It started at 6 p.m. So what turned the tides of war? A Scottish Marine with a basket full of grenades. He's up in the sails, lighting and throwing them onto the British ship. And one of those grenades goes down a hatchway. The grenade hits a pile of discarded cartridges, which are full of gunpowder, and the explosion goes the length of the ship on the gun deck from one end to another, literally blew the ship up into the water and immediately just disintegrates dozens of sailors. A breathtaking moment in a spectacularly improbable battle. The Serapis is now on fire. And Richard Pearson realizes he's got to get his few survivors off the ship as quickly as possible. So then he shows quarters to Jones. Just before the battle started, Pearson had nailed the flag, British flag to the masthead. The symbol being, I and I alone can surrender this ship. And we will not surrender, we will fight to the death. But then he says, I show quarters. Jones says, if you're telling the truth, take your flag down. He takes the flag down, comes on board, offers him the sword, which was the tradition, captain offers a sword and, and surrender. And then he says to Jones, 
who am I surrendering to? The point being, who's on this crew anyway? Jones lies to her and says, mostly Americans. And Pearson's response is, then it was diamonds that cut diamonds. Meaning, Americans are my peers. Technically, they're still British. The war's not over. Jones had told him the truth. There are a bunch of Spaniards and Italians and Moroccans on this ship. Pearson would have changed his mind in a hurry. <laughs> Both ships are on fire. The carnage, unbelievable. The British have surrendered, but the Bonhomme Richard is sinking. They chop off all the ropes that were used to, to tie them together. The next day, the Bonhomme Richard does indeed sink. John Paul Jones sails what's left of the charred shell of the Serapis into Holland, limping into the neutral port. When he arrives there with Pearson as his prisoner, he is treated as a hero because he's just defeated a British man of war. It's the first time in the American Revolution that a British man of war has been defeated. Put this into context, during the American Revolution, the British had a central problem. What if the Americans win? The British said, if they win, they will be our primary trading partner. As a result, we cannot destroy the docks, we cannot destroy the warehouses, we cannot destroy the piers, we cannot destroy the ports. Many of the British admirals in these giant men of wars that they built, which could carry as many 74, 75 cannons, they could have all just sailed into American ports, Boston, Philadelphia, New York, Charleston, Norfolk, and just opened fire and obliterated them, wiped them off the face of the earth. But the British Admiralty said, no, you cannot do that. Many of the British officers wanted to do that. Some of the British officers actually resigned their commissions and went home when they were denied the opportunity to reduce the American ports to rubble. The men of war were so big and powerful, you didn't fight them, you avoided them. But here we have John Paul Jones destroying a British man of war. So he becomes a hero. And this moment goes down in history as an American victory. Even during that, that slow age of sail, news traveled quickly when it was of this international importance. The British would not let it go. They set up a blockade to try to prevent John Paul Jones from leaving Holland. But he was such a superior sailor, he sailed right through the blockade at full speed in a fast sloop, and then sailed through the second blockade, and then the third blockade, and made it all the way back to France. They never even got a shot off. He was a brilliant sailor. He understood how far a ship could be taken before it would destroy itself. Because back in those days, if a ship was going too fast, it would start disintegrating. Jones makes it back to France a hero. In fact, after this impressive victory, the Masons in Paris had a bust commissioned of Jones. By the great famous French sculptor Hodan. What Jones did was he liked the bust of himself so much, he bought dozens of them and mailed them to his friends so they could have a bust of him. He mailed them to George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay. One of those busts is in, still in the Mariners Museum's archive. One is in Annapolis Museum. One is still in John Jay's house in New York. Jefferson originally put his up, but then got tired of it and threw it away. <laughs> we told you he was vain. Meanwhile, Jones is left looking for another mission. He's kept in France waiting for a while before he's on the move again. Jones makes it back to the U.S. to try to get more ships then comes back to France again, 
He languishes in France for nine years, 10 years, doing absolutely nothing but still in the employ of the American government. Fast forward to around 1788. The war's been over since 1783. 41-year-old Jones is bored out of his mind, stuck in France. And the Russians meet with him and say, how would you like to be an admiral in the Russian Navy and help us fight the Turks for control of the Black Sea? Benjamin Franklin tells him, go for it. John Adams tells him, go for it. We don't need you anymore. At this time, the Americans had still not authorized the building of a Navy. That would not come until years later with Thomas Jefferson. America is still forming. The Constitution hasn't even been signed yet. So he moves to Russia and becomes a Russian admiral for four years. Fights against the Turks under Catherine the Great, who hired him. Very well paid, has success against the Turks. The Russians win that war for control of the Black Sea. But then Catherine gets tired of him, of his arrogance and his self-promotion, and she keeps him on payroll. He spends two years just sitting in St. Petersburg doing nothing on the Russian payroll. They did not want to give him a command of a full fleet. He gets caught up in a sex scandal by the Russian secret police. It was a setup that was fairly common. It still is in Russian culture, what they call compromise. Jones leaves Russia and comes back to France, where he lives in obscurity until his death from a kidney disorder at the age of 45. The Americans don't want it. He's buried in the Protestant cemetery. The doctor puts him in a alcohol concoction, puts him in a lead coffin. He says, the Americans are gonna want him to back someday. So we're gonna preserve his body. They bury him in a Protestant cemetery outside of Paris. He gets interred right next to the Swiss guards who were killed when King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette were captured and executed. Their execution was only a month after Jones died. And Jones's body is lost to history. It gets buildings built on top of it. Nobody even knows where it is. Over a century later, a search begins to find Jones's body, to return it home to the United States. The American ambassador to France, General Horace Porter, personally led the effort. It takes him six years going through maps, digging holes, trying to figure out where in the world the cemetery could actually be and where he would be. Finally find it under a restaurant. They dig him up, they open up the coffin. The alcohol preservation was so good, it still looked like him. It looked, they knew it was him right away. <laughs> President Theodore Roosevelt says, we need an American hero from the revolution. We're gonna bring his body back. A battleship and three cruisers go and get his body. They come back from France. When they enter the Chesapeake Bay, there are seven other battleships waiting for him. The now 11 ships sail up the Chesapeake to Annapolis, and there's a huge ceremony. Jones is eventually placed in a 21-ton marble sarcophagus. Uh, almost everything that he told the Continental Congress needed to be done did eventually happen. <laughs> took a long time, but did eventually happen. It wasn't until 1845 that the U.S. finally built that Naval Academy. Even though he was Scottish-born, Ed Moore says the larger-than-life John Paul Jones was American through and through. 
He considered himself Scottish until 1775. From that point on, he considered himself American. July 18, 1792. A naval hero of the American Revolution dies in Paris. His fight finally over. John Paul Jones led a raucous life on the open seas, a con of a commander and a thorn in the side of the Brits. The so-called father of the U.S. Navy, now interred in a marble crypt in the chapel of the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. Engraved beneath his final resting place, to honor this rogue of the revolution, quote, he gave our Navy its earliest traditions of heroism and victory. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. This episode was written by me, Rachel DePompa, and executive producer Colton Weegley. Many thanks to our digital director, Kate Albright, and of course, executive producer Colton Weekly. This podcast would not happen without either of you. Also, our stellar guest this week, newcomer to the podcast, Ed Moore, recommended to us by the Mariners Museum in Newport News. And Dr. Karen Sherry with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Thank you both. Next week on Episode 3, A Shipwreck at Sea Where All Isn't Quite Lost. They really were lucky in many ways on how it sort of ended up. And then they land in paradise. But then paradise turns to horror. They find what they call skeletons, anatomies, and people starving. And that's when this harrowing tale begins. Plus, the first major battle of the Civil War. No one's moved this many troops before. McDowell's never commanded an army like this. And the devil is in the detail. Where both sides realize this isn't going to end anytime soon. I mean, he's riding up and down the line, shouting victory, victory, and everyone's cheering. And then they look across to Henry Hill and they see more Confederates and more guns and they start to realize, huh, maybe this isn't going to be as easy as we thought. That's next week on Episode 3. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind and you use Apple Podcasts, Rate and review us. It really does help others find us. We have an Instagram account, How We Got Here, VA. Follow us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday. Let it come! Forbid it, almighty God! Let it come! Forbid it! I know not what course others may take, but as for me... Forbid it, almighty God! Let it come! Give me liberty! Oh, give me death! You knew I wouldn't let this go. Had to be done. See you next Monday.